Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This is Eugene Hernandez from Film at Lincoln Center. In a moment, we're going to listen to a conversation from the 57th New York Film Festival. Rosalie Varda was here for a Q&A about Varda by Yes, her late mother's last film. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, we're here to talk about a series that's upcoming here at Film and Lincoln Center. This weekend is the opening of Relentless Invention, New Korean Cinema, 1996-2003. And I'm joined on this week's podcast with two colleagues, Tyler Wilson from our programming department here at Lincoln Center and Grady Hendricks from our partners and co-programmers of this series at Subway Cinema. Hey, man. Thanks for having me up to the uh, Citadel of Cinema. Welcome. All right. Tell us a little bit about the series. Tell us, maybe first of all, share with me and share with our listeners how the series came about. Well, this series is really the fault of Goran Topalovic, who's one of the guys I work with in Subway Cinema. We did a series back in, gosh, 2001 uh, called When Korean Cinema Attacks because we were seeing all these amazing movies by these people no one had heard of like Park Chan-wook and Bong Joon-ho and Kim Ji-won coming out of Korea. And we got a chance to show this stuff and we fell in love. And Goran really fell in love, actually literally fell in love and wound up marrying a Korean producer named um, Kim Kyung-mi. And... Um, He's wanted to ever since then because a lot of those movies that kicked off this huge renaissance of Korean movies in the in the um, late 90s, they've kind of fallen away. They've been forgotten. And so some directors like uh, Park Chan-wook uh, and Kim Ji-won, who have gone on to do bigger things, their movies were hits at the time, but no one remembers what happened in 1999. I don't remember what happened in 1999. So he and Kyung-mi have always wanted to bring these movies back and they had to basically go on an Indiana Jones style hunt through buried chambers and and lost print storage vaults and bankrupt companies and all these places to get the permission and the materials to show these movies. I'm actually astonished at the lineup. So following up on that, Grady, the tremendous success of Bong Joon-ho's Parasite has certainly created a, a greater opportunity to share a whole range of films with a wider audience. How is the success of the film creating more interest, perhaps, not only in director Bong's work, but in, in so many other uh, so many other films as well? Well, I mean, you know, the place I see it happening is people are paying attention to Korean cinema again, yeah. and they want to see a bunch of old movies from the 90s, yeah. all of a sudden, in the early 2000s. I mean, they're great films, but a lot of these movies have gone out of print and kind of been forgotten to some extent. Um, you look at Bong Joon-ho's um, Memories of Murder, which is a phenomenal movie that's in the lineup that is basically Zodiac, but better years before <laughs> Fincher made Zodiac. Um, that movie was a huge hit when it came out, but really it's sort of like in the US, people know him for Okja or Snowpiercer or something right, like this. Right. So it's a chance to go back and see this stuff people were doing earlier. Um, Park Chan-wook's best known for Old Boy, but his big hit in Korea before that was JSA, which is an fabulous movie that really almost could not be made today about a friendship between soldiers on the North Korea and South Korean border and sort of a murder that tears them apart. I mean, try making that now. It just wouldn't happen. And one more question for you before we talk a bit more about some of the specific films and showtimes and events that are happening. And I'll ask Tyler, Tyler to speak to that in just a moment. But um, Grady, one more question. Um, for audiences that, that uh, attend this series and sort of sample some of the work that was coming, um, out of this uh, out of this region at this time period, what kind of 
connections might audiences find between work uh, among various directors, uh, connections to newer and older work? What are some of the sort of points that you hope audiences might take away or, or the connections they might draw? Well, two things that people should really look out for. One is that there is a real, real polish between these guys. Korean film technicians are some of the best in the world. And when you start looking at these movies, Korea was coming out of a huge period of film censorship and a film industry that basically imploded before there were some law changes and things like that that sort of facilitated this renaissance. And but what they had were amazing technicians. And so you're seeing some editors and art departments and cinematographers and even directors just at the top of their game and you think, where did they come from? None of these, except for maybe a movie like Die Bad, which is which is sort of rough and raw on purpose. These movies feel like something that's been made by a studio director in Hollywood's golden age. Mm. They're very lavish, they're very measured, they're very well-crafted and beautifully crafted. And it really takes American audiences by surprise. I mean, you look at um, the romantic comedies that are in this and the romances in this, they're so sophisticated and so beautiful that you'd have to go way, way back to the 80s in the US, and I would even say back almost to the 30s to find romances like this in the States. Then the other thing people should look at that really connects a lot of these movies together is the actor Song Kang-ho from Parasite. I mean, these were the movies that made him a star. He was a theater director, a theater actor before he did The Quiet Family, which led to JSA, which led to uh, Memories of Murder, which, I mean, he is in so many movies in this lineup. Uh, The Foul King was one that broke broke him huge, his wrestling movie. So you could almost make a mini sidebar in here of just following Song (laughs) Kang-ho from movie to movie. I think you get like seven films. Wow. So uh, switching gears, Tyler, um, help us understand, help the audience understand you work in our programming department here at Film at Lincoln Center. Um, Maybe you can add some context about how the series came about, how this relationship uh, came about, and also why this is kind of the right moment to look at uh, this work. Yeah, I mean, just to add to what Grady's already mentioned, um, I think it does come at a really convenient uh, time with Bong Joon-ho's Parasite screening on our first run screen. Uh, gives audience members who might be encountering his work for the first time with Parasite to look back at his uh, career and to see the sort of landscape and ensemble of filmmakers he was working alongside of, uh, sort of as they were coming of age as filmmakers. Um, Memories of Murder is a fascinating film to kind of look back on, uh, especially to see it as Parasite is a film that is so well-crafted and continuously surprising. and. You sort of see that already in his first two features, Barking Dogs Never Bite and Memories of Murder. Um, uh, I think, yeah, Grady made a good point to kind of compare it to Zodiac, even though this came four years earlier. But it's really also a film that constantly surprises. It's uh, to basically give you the plot rundown. It's a police procedural about a what's considered Korea's, I think, first serial killer. The first known one, yeah. Yeah, um, a string of murders that occurred in the 80s. and it takes this cold case um, uh, to kind of unfold a procedural that just sort of goes nowhere. It's a film very much concerned with the aftermath of violence. Uh, And we sort of get different approaches to solving this crime through the three directors, or three uh, detectives rather, who uh, are in charge of the case. One who has a superstitious sort of outlook of uh, sort of eyeing a criminal based on just sort of seeing the their morals in their eyesight, which is played by Song Kang Ho, and you have um, another detective who is more in favor of brute force, and another who sort of adheres to DNA uh, evidence from uh, Seoul, uh, 
Um, but it's a film that constantly moves between uh, police procedural to a sort of slapstick and physical comedy and real moments of melancholy really seamlessly and subtly that I think will uh, surprise viewers. Um, I think like the way we started uh, 1996, uh, I think, um, Grady, I don't know if you have to add anything about this, but I think it's worth noting that uh, 1996 was the first year for uh, Busan International Film Festival, uh, which was Korea's first international film festival. And uh, I think set the stage for Korea not to be not simply an observer of cinema, but, but uh, was a catalyst in making uh, this industry uh, an active participant in world cinema. Uh, it also notably debuted uh, Hong Sing Su's first feature, uh, the day a pig fell into the well, which is screening two times during our series. And also 96, or it might have been 95, but Korea had been a military dictatorship, largely, I mean, from 1961 forward. And um, But it's always had really strong democratic institutions, or, or does now. And 95 or 96 was the year the Supreme Court in Korea ruled it was illegal to censor a movie. You could not take a movie and remove objectionable scenes. And that's when Korea came up with a rating system. And they were able to start, filmmakers were able to start talking about not even controversial material, just human material uh, in a way they couldn't before. So it was another reason that's sort of a landmark year. So um, for Grady and Tyler, uh, what are the what are the logistical challenges and hurdles of pulling together a show like this? You referenced it a little bit, Grady, but um, it, it certainly is no um, easy feat with any retrospective. But what are some of the challenges that were unique to this show? I mean, you know, Tyler knows a lot more about what was on the ground, but from Garan and Kyungmi's point of view, it was a getting permission. I mean, CJ Entertainment owns almost everything in Korea these days. A lot of the smaller companies have gone bankrupt. Their catalogs are scattered. And CJ, you know, they don't see the point in screening some movies. Tell us more about CJ. Oh, sure. So CJ Entertainment, it's um, it's one of the it's sort of part of one of the Chaballs, which are one of the giant sort of multifaceted corporations that really run Korea. They have the food unit and all these things. But it's uh, film unit, entertainment unit has really become this powerhouse. It is it's like all five old school Hollywood studios rolled up in one with a, a global theatrical circuit and television on top of that. So CJ um, really is a top down. I don't know. We don't really think of Disney in the States. That's CJ, uh, but bigger. Um, and uh, they some of these movies, they don't see the point in screening them again. So you really have to, Goran Kilmi really had to do a song and dance to convince them it's worth showing this movie where you're going to have to find some contract from 10 years ago, you know, to make sure it's okay for us to show. The other problem is a lot of American companies brought these movies over back in the day because they were hot and they were hip in the early 2000s. Many of those companies have gone bankrupt. So where are the materials? Uh, CJ would say something to Goran or Kilmi like, yeah, someone has those rights in America and they'd have to hunt those down. So it was really a rights hunt and a materials hunt. I think the sympathy for Mr. Vengeance materials were like found in a storeroom like at the last minute. So I guess it goes without saying, Tyler, that some of these films are simply not available to audiences. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, a lot of these films, uh, if you can manage to find them on DVD, are maybe not the best quality to watch these films. And uh, we also have the opportunity in this series to premiere a number of restorations. Mm. Uh, yeah, tell us about some of those. Uh, so I, I would highlight maybe Save the Green Planet, which is screening on uh, opening day on the 22nd at 9 p.m. Uh, uh, directed by Jang Jun Hwan, I would describe it uh, as an absolutely crazed uh, 
sci-fi revenge thriller about a, a, a mentally unwell man who kidnaps uh, a rich businessman because he believes uh, this man is an alien threatening to destroy the world. Uh, but he also may be right, and he it, may be in exactly. the process of saving the world. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the film is incredibly successful at constantly making the audience member question how right this main character actually is, uh, and in the same way it moves constantly between genres and different emotional registers. Uh, there's, like, at one point it might feel like a horror film, and it's it's maybe quoting Psycho in its soundtrack, and then the next scene it's a very, like, emotional, sweet uh, moment of romance, uh, and you just constantly had this sort of whiplash between scenes that makes you really give up on assuming where you think this film might go, and it really does go into uh, a really wild place, but one that I think is actually pretty moving it's, by the time it ends. It's one of those uh, movies that's really over the top, but so emotionally grounded and satisfying, which is a rare combination, but yeah, it's really, I cry at the end of this movie every time. Yeah, it's. but anyway, the film is, uh, we're, we have the pleasure of uh, presenting the international premiere of this restoration, and because we're premiering it, the film is coming to us without <clears throat> embedded English subtitles, so we're actually going to be live projecting English subtitles for uh, this film and a number of other screenings uh, in the series, uh, uh, Nowhere to Hide, Number 3, The Ginkgo Bed, uh, The Day a Pig Fell into the Well. So yeah, a lot of these films are incredibly rare and are coming to us in maybe the best format to see them especially in a theater. And can I just say something about the 4K restorations? Because the other, another one you're doing out of several is uh, Nowhere to Hide, which is um, Im Young-sae, who directed it, is sort of like the grand old young man of Korean cinema. He's sort of like Martin Scorsese was for a long time. Like, Myung-sae will, will direct a movie that becomes this classic in the 80s or the 90s, and then he'll direct three movies that flop, and everyone's oh, that guy's over, he's a hack, you know, he must be on drugs. Then he'll direct another big hit, and it'll become this huge classic. Then there'll be another three flops. And Nowhere to Hide was his last big hit um and it is an action movie unlike anything you've ever seen before i mean he really wanted to sort of put pure movement on screen and there's a story it's based around this manhunt for a criminal but it is this incredibly incredibly kinetic movie that just keeps almost shattering the screen and punching you in the face it's really incredible it was a huge hit in korea everyone said Im young say is going to be this big big director now and he made a huge mistake at that point in his career he came to the u.s and lived in queens for five years and tried to get things started in hollywood which basically meant that they wanted to have meetings with him about Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. Mm -hmm. And he spent five years just sort of in this development hell before going back to Korea and, and picking his career back up. But Nowhere to Hide was this beautiful, just, it's a filmmaker using everything they've learned over their entire career to just pull out all the stops. We're talking about Relentless Invention, New Korean Cinema, 1996 to 2003, a series that's coming up here at Film at Lincoln Center, November 22nd through December 4th. Um, Grady Hendrix and Tyler Wilson, any uh, any additional last minute plugs before we wrap up our conversation? The only thing I would say is is sort of two plugs. One is um, if you saw Parasite and you want to know what else is out there with Korean cinema, Memories of Murder by Bong Joon Ho is an amazing place to start. But also uh, Joint Security Area by Park Chan Wook is a, a great movie about uh, sort of this friendship between North Korean and South Korean soldiers that, that unfolds like a thriller. And also The Foul King which is Song Kang-ho from Parasite, who plays the dad, one of his movies that made him a star early on, where he's a bank teller who tries to find his dignity by becoming a, uh, a masked wrestler. Uh, it's a really, really funny movie. But I also want to say, if you want to see something that will freak you out, uh, Resurrection of the Little Match Girl uh, by Jong Sun-woo is a movie that 
It's it's if you think of like Jodorowsky's El Topo, which was like the psychedelic Western, or Obayashi's uh, um, uh, House, which is like the psychedelic Japanese horror movie. This is the psychedelic action movie or video game movie. Zhang Sun Wu wanted to make this massive video game movie, and he bankrupted three production companies doing it. His career ended, but it is so worth it. It's it's about. A video game that's sort of an immersive world, which is kind of based on a Hans Christian Andersen folktale, which also is about restless young people who get addicted to lighter fluid, who just start shooting up public places. It's also about a gun that is a fish. It is mind-blowing. And it's one of those movies that's not just weird for weird's sake. Jung Sung-woo knows what he's doing. You are on his wavelength. You may not understand what his wavelength is, but it is somewhere and it's broadcasting something. And if you can get even a percentage of it, it's life-changing. Great. Tyler? Um, I would just honestly recommend people seeing as many films as possible in this series just so they can get a, a, a sort of basic handle on the landscape of Korean cinema during this time. Uh, we have like memories of Bernie screening three times during the series, but uh, for those of you who want to see as much as possible, I would recommend getting our uh, three uh, plus film package or buying our all access pass because a number of these films will uh, disappear just as soon as they arrived here. So I would jump on the chance to see anything you can. The series is Relentless Invention, again, running at here at Film at Lincoln Center, November 22nd. Through December 4th, visit filmlink.org for more information and tickets. Uh, Grady Hendricks and Tyler Wilson, thank you very much for talking about it with us today. Thanks, man. Thank you. So also this week here at Film at Lincoln Center, we have the opening of a first-run release of Varda by Agnes. It's the final film by the late Agnes Varda, who passed away earlier this year and was a mainstay at the New York Film Festival. She had films in every single decade of the festival, and this year her daughter and producer of the film, Rosalie, joined us for a Q&A following a sold-out screening of Varda Bainez. She talked about how the film is a fitting farewell to the legendary filmmaker, her mom, Agnes. For more information on Varda Bainez, check out filmlink.org for tickets. And let's go now to the conversation with Rosalie Varda, moderated by our Film at Lincoln Center programmer, Florence Almozini. Thank you so much, Rosalie, for being here. Um, it's a pretty emotional moment to just talk about the film when we just see the end. For you. Uh, well, um, yes, for me. Um, for you, yeah. as you, I don't know if you know, but I actually saw the film in Berlin. Uh, with Agnès uh, there, and she was extremely lively, lively and, and, and funny on stage, and, and it was kind of nearly weird to see a movie that seems like a, an end to something while she was so lively and, and full of energy, as she always was, um, and then we're watching it after, um, when, you know. I'm sure you're aware. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> um, maybe I'll ask a couple of questions. Yes, and of then course. we can uh, talk to the audience, which I'm sure wants to know. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you started working on the film, um, did you have a set structure about how you were going to go about going into all the movies she's talking about? Did you discuss about the chronological uh, development in the film? Or was it more like... Uh, We'll talk about what I want to uh, say. We, we started the project in 2015, and at that period when we really started this project, um, it was the idea to, to do a film where she would talk about her own 
work, you know, and like uh, not only the film, but I would say the photo and the installation and the part, you know, of the visual artist she's doing since 15 years. And um, then, oh, it's very loud suddenly. Um, and then we stopped. So we filmed one or two masterclass and then we stopped because we did faces basis. Yes. And so when we restarted the project in 2018, um, we, at the production, we, we, we thought, you know, it, we had to do it. And um, I was saying in the presentation that she was not sure it would be interesting, but she worked, you know, with, um, with Didier Rouget, who was, yeah. you know, who helped her to co-direct the first part. Mm -hmm of the film, they did work to, to write, you know, a kind of a structure of this. So you're right, do we have to speak about the film by themes or should we do it chronology, you know, or should we do, how should we present this? And it's true that after she had the question with Didier and they thought, and she thought it was better to do a chronology globally, mm -hmm. globally. Uh, because she was thinking too that this film should be able to be seen by people that would, do not know her films yeah. and would not be very, uh, you know, it, she didn't want it to be a sophisticated structure, you know? Mm -hmm. She wanted it to be very smooth and very simple. So in a way, to begin by the beginning is, is quite simple, you know? Mm -hmm. So it really was, uh, the first part, which is 35 millimeters, 16 millimeters, argentic with cameras and crews. And the second part is when the digital began in her life and when you know, she bought a, a first digital camera in 2000, it was a little Sony. And um, with this little camera, she started to shoot the gleaners and I. So it's true that you know, the structure of the film she kind of made it at the editing, you know, I mean, working on that. But with Didier, they, they did prepare a lot of things to, 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 you know, the conversation where she should talk. And for the example on Vagabond, I think it was, you know, very smart to, to do a little shooting fiction of how to explain um, a traveling, but not only that, mm -hmm. she could be, in a situation to speak about the structure of background, of you know the, the traveling, structuring the film, going from right to left, you know, and to see uh, Sandrine Bonner at the end, it's, it's, it's a little delight, it's a little treasure, you know. So those little ideas, I think they, they got it to working, you know, together. And I think it's maybe that that makes the film a little bit special. It's not only going in the archive of your own film, is she tried to do this as a film and trying to put cinema and you know um, in it. How many times have you seen the film? Not so much. Not so much. Okay. We we did like I would say two or three screenings before the end. You know, like when you do the mixing, the color grading, the editing. Um, then I check, you know, the, the screening when you check the DCP, you know, and things like that. 
but then I saw it um, uh, in Berlin, and it was, you know, a kind of a special screening because we knew uh, it would be, you know, kind of uh, her last festival, and that she was, she was very sick, and uh, so it was a little tough on us. Mm -hmm. But I thought that would be nice for her, so I, I invited all the crew that worked on the film, and you know, everybody came in Berlin, and, and we did a kind of a very nice evening afterwards. A, a lot of champagne and a lot of joy, and um, she was so extremely um, light, you know, on life. And uh, so it helped me. But I haven't seen the film since. I, I cannot really, right now, I'll do it later. The, you know, the voice is a little bit difficult to hear. The, the photo is okay, but the voice is a little bit like, um, it's normal. That's, uh, yeah, it's I'm normal. sure our voices has a very well. The thing is too. interesting is that the audience they know her voice because since she has been you know putting a little bit of herself in films since so long, you know doing herself the the commentaire and you know and everything. So we know her voice, mm -hmm. we know her image, and I think it is one of the reason why. She is uh, a little bit, I would say, uh, popular on people know her face more than some other directors. It's because she put it herself in the films since a long time, you know, since the Gleaners globally. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if I answer well your question, but. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she, she did, I mean, you can cut her career into like, pre-Gleaner and after Gleaner, because she made amazing films before. But then it's interesting that in, in her career, then coming to digital, she would also change it to insert herself. So it's true that everybody has a very strong relationship with her, because we feel we are close to her, and she's close to us, and she understands us. And that's why it makes it mm -hmm. emotional and, and very special for a lot of people who've been following film. But then when you watch this film, you get a lot of Agnes from well, it's, it's pre done and after. For, I mean, it's done for that. This film is done to have a little bit of Agnes, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, and I hope it will give the desire, you know, to, to see some films. I, I, I certainly hope so, because we're working on a retrospective with you. We will so show you a lot of films. You understand the secret message is there will be a retrospective of Agnes Varda in, de in December, yeah. so you can come. Yeah. That's the secret message. Yes, but well, now it's not secret anymore. It was secret before you said it. <laughs> but no, it's actually when I watch this film, I also do want to rewatch also all the other films, mm. even so I've seen them before. And I hope you all feel the desire to discover things maybe you haven't seen on the big screen. Mm. Um, maybe we can take audience questions. Yes, too. of course. Yes. <clears throat> Very interesting seeing through her eyes. Uh, I have a question about her relationship to photography, still images and moving images. As a documentary filmmaker who does still photography as well, I could see her the influence on her moving images from her history in the still image. Did she ever talk about her relationship to, to moving and still images? I think you, you're asking a very interesting question because I really, 
I cannot answer for her, of course, but what I can feel and what she said is that being a photographer for years before going you know, to be a film director made her, I think, very strongly, um, she had a knowledge, I would say, of, of, this, you know, of the screen, of what you put in the screen and what you put out of the screen. She would say, and I think, you know, as a photographer, she was already kind of doing cinema. You know, it's like when you see the photos and, you know, she did not do exhibition of her photo in that period. I mean, she, she did a lot of photos of theaters, play, you know, the Théâtre National Populaire, which was a big company of theaters in the 50s. And um, you see already in the photos that the frame is so special, you know, and I think it did influence her when she began, uh, became a, a film director, of course. I mean, because if you look on all her film, it is always so precise, you know, I mean, how she chooses how the people are in the frame of her film. So, yes. And that's why, too, I think she was interested working with digital camera and, you know, doing the Gleaners and I and doing the, you know, two years after the Gleaners and I and then doing the TV series with always that, those digital camera. I think she was really interested afterwards to re-put the questioning of still image, moving image, frame and frame. And a lot of her installation of art, installation that I don't know if you have the chance to see some, are really uh, questioning about that. There's another question here. Yeah, I have a, a question. The, um, when she shot digitally, did she often do that all by herself? Like go by herself, do the sound and shooting by herself? Was she, or did she have somebody with her off? No, she did some shooting alone with the little Sony, mini Sony, you know, the, you know, the Sony that you turn like this and you get the little, you know, the little screen like that. So, but uh, usually she, it was a very light crew, like somebody for the sound, because it's a problem, the sound, if you don't have good sound, you know, and um, so usually they were three or four, three. It's not a lot, you know, so you're not aggressive with people being three person on the set and maybe one person helping, but not next to the people. And I think she was very, um, she liked that relationship, you know, making, talking to the people and having, you know, them share with her a little bit of themselves and filming them uh, and not being aggressive with a big crew, with a big camera, with somebody having, you know, a big sound thing and everything. So she liked it to do shootings where she would be nearly, vanishing, you know what I mean? And they would forget that there's a camera and that there's a sound engineer. That she must she, have been very technically adept. She seemed what? very, very technically adept. You know, the sound was good, the, it was on a tripod, or, you know, everything looked great. Yes, but you know, you can do good image and good sound with two a person, you know. So the question is, she didn't like, you know, having big crews on big sets, and it was not her thing, you know. She wanted that the technique 
would be not in, you know, would be there, would be very good, but would not be in the front, you know, not showing themselves, you know. Uh, beautiful film and a beautiful person. Um, thank you. Uh, watching the film, I was struck by how it's, it seemed that she always had inspiration. She, there was never a moment where she was doubting herself or at least not shown in the film. So I was wondering whether it was a conscious decision on her part and on the filmmaking team to kind of not show the struggle if there was one. You know, the struggle of getting this films made and staying inspired. Or was it really that easy? Was she always just constantly inspired, always going? I think there's two things in your question is, um, the doubt is always there as a, you know, as a most artist, they always have the doubt of what they're doing and questioning of what they're doing. Um, this film, you know, we did it on, I said, you know, we did a little bit in 2015, then we stopped, then we, we did it in 2018 and the editing was very long and the shooting was not every day, but you know, Agnes could not do a normal shooting, like, you know, five weeks in the row, uh, shooting 10 hours a day. I mean, it was, uh, she was a, she was an old woman in very good shape and very bright and sharp, but her body was not in the condition to do like this. So I would say the shooting anyway was structured by how she was, you know. Um, struggle is not the good word because I don't think there's a struggle. It's, it's just sometimes she was wondering if what she was doing was the good way to do it, you know, and then going in the editing room, editing the thing, seeing what is missing or what she should do or she loved to, to do that. You know, in the editing room, she was constructing the film, you know, because it's not so easy. You have to go back in your own work. And she had to choose things because we, we couldn't do a four-hour film. It would be awful and boring. So um, we, she had to choose what she wanted to talk about on each film. And the question was, and that's where with Didier, they kind of do a ping pong saying, okay, let's do, what do we choose on Cleo? What do we choose on happiness? What do we choose on, you know, L'une chante l'autre pas? What do we choose on Ragabond? What do we choose on, choose on Jaco de Nantes? You know, because then you have to kind of take a little bit of everything. And then she wanted to speak a little bit about her installation that people globally don't know and that she was a photographer that globally people don't know. So it went, I mean, there was too much material. She had to cut into it, you know. But I think she was right because in fact, the idea was not to say everything about everything. The idea is to give the desire to the audience to see, to feel, to think, and maybe to go and see a film. I think uh, I chose to work with her. I'm sure of myself. So I'm not a victim, I'm not a slave. Um, I know where is my place. I try to find my place next to her. And finally, um, it started slowly. You know, it started in 2003. We, we did together, we, I was kind of co-curator with her of her own 
exhibition she has done at the Cartier Foundation in Paris. And in, when we worked together, we, we enjoyed it a lot. And, and I think she, she trusts me uh, you know, on, on my advice, on organizing next to her so she could be more free to create and have not so production problems, organization problems, and I mean, so it went slowly. I mean, it, it, it didn't go on one day, but more and more I took care of the company and more and more I took care of her. And I would say 10 years ago, I thought, you know, I will only take care of her. And I want her to be able to do exactly what she wanted to do for the, her last years of work, you know, which needed uh, to be next to her and to organize things. Because it's heavy, you know, it's heavy to travel, it's heavy to, to do things. And she, even though she was in very good shape globally, uh, it's not the same, you know, you have to, to protect her a little bit. So it started slowly and we, we were good partners. She was very nice with me. Sometimes we argue a little bit and, um, and uh, you know, it's normal because you work with her. I was with her every day, you know. Um, but the relation was interesting because she, she always asked me what I thought and, you know, and she would write something, you know, and even it was I'd say to answer a journalist with some question or to, to write something for a catalog or anything. And she, I would always read what she had written, you know, and we could discuss if sometimes I thought this was not good enough or she could be even better or she could be even sharper. Or I was always telling her, no concession now. You know, you haven't done them till you're 80, so you're not going to do them now, you know. So really do whatever you want, and I will be next to you and, and do the, to do so you can do it. I don't know how to say in English, I'll be able to, to put you in the situation to do it. But we did argue a little bit sometimes, um, but she was so clever to always listen to what the people working with her was telling her. So sometimes she said, she was like, mm, no, I don't like the, you know? but she was so clever to listen and sometimes she would change and sometimes she wouldn't because she thought she was right and then she was right. You know, I was not there next to her to, to make her change. I was next to her to help her to be the best she could, which is very different on the relationship. And sometimes just for fun, when she was kind of difficult, I would say, you know, if you don't like, I can find another little old woman to take care of. <laughs> so I can tell you it would stop it right away. <laughs> we laughed a lot. That's, that's, people cannot understand that, but in the middle of everything, we, we did laugh a lot. Uh, do you, when you re, do you rewatch a lot of the Agnes films sometimes or I do I saw you know when we worked on this I did 
we see all the films, mm -hmm. but I, globally, I see them once in a while. Do you have any special favorites in terms of Okay, the, so the I can tell you my answer because it's a very good answer. All the films are wonderful, interesting. They are a little bit like my children. I don't prefer one. But sometimes, but sometimes different time of the year, different day, different where you are, you're more open to one film or another. I would say um, the most personal film she has done where maybe she had put it, a lot of her is documentaire. I think this is the only film where she did really put what she was feeling at that moment. But the rest of the film, she's very clever. She puts herself, but she always puts what she wants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, she puts and pull back and pull yeah. back in. Yeah. Clever, yeah. clever girl. <laughs> but that's why also the movies are so enduring and so uh, personal for anyone because you identify, identify to certain things and then you can see her and then you don't see her and you want to see more. Um, and you have to come back for the retrospective because then you can see everything again. And I think you'll be back. Uh, yes, at some I, I'll point. come back in, in January in and I will, yeah. I will present some films. And we will let you know which one we are. Oh, there's more, there's the question? Yes. Um, I wanted to ask, I know she, you know, found inspiration from so much and that led her to make such unique and different films every time. But I'm curious if every film was structured around a very strong script or if she just let, you know, a, a specific inspiration kind of lead its way into its own story um, in the narrative films that she did. Okay, in the documentaries, you, you, even if you write the base of the documentary you are interested in, you know that the documentary is on the shooting that you discover and one thing brings you to another. So a documentary is impossible to write before, you know. For narrative films, she always had very precise script but I think on the shooting of what I saw, she was able to be open, you know, to, to leave the door open so it would be a little bit different of what she had written, but because talking with the actor, seeing the set, she would be influenced and having other ideas. But I don't know how to translate exactly in English. She always said, Le hasard est mon meilleur assistant, which would mean... I mean, like, chance is my best assistant? What? Chance is my best assistant? Yes, but chance, chance is not... Le hasard is not chance. It's like what's going on that is not prepared or predictable could be my best assistant. So she was always open to that. And I think even in her fiction films, you know, at least the... the the two fiction film like on Vagabond, when I worked on Vagabond, I did the, the costume on Vagabond. I didn't really do all the shooting, but um, it was prepared, it was structured. But in that, 
she would leave a place to be not improvisation, because I don't like this word. It, I, I would say it's more, she was open to what would happen that could go into the scene. Hi, thanks so much. Uh, so in the course of the documentary, it was uh, hinted that uh, she had admiration for certain of her contemporaries, uh, including Jacques Demy and people like Bunuel and so forth. Um, and it, you got the sense that she admired a lot of other creators during her lifetime as well as maybe earlier. But uh, did she ever speak of new voices in the new, in the new century that she was attracted to people that she admired from the, this uh, 21st century? Like, like upcoming directors? Yes, or, exactly. Yeah. Or creative? Uh, that's that's okay. the first part of the question. The second part is, uh, uh, what was her spirit about collaboration with other creators? Uh, and, and were there any projects that she, or, or wish uh, projects that, that never came to uh, fruition? Okay, so um, I can answer on one part of the question. Um, I think she never had the idea to do a collaboration with another director or, co or to co-direct a film. I think the project that she has done with Gier, where they co-directed Faces Places, came because she met him and because of what they had in common. In a way, you know, she she did a documentary on murals, so on, in a way, street art, you know, in the 80s. And Gier is pasting since 10 years all over the world, huge, you know, image of anonymous person. So between the documentaries that Agnes did and between his work, there was a relation that could work together, you know, and I think she gave a lot to Gier, but Gier gave a lot to her too, because he was able to push her a little bit, you know, like, um, and to give her energy, her, you know, she, it was a good balance, you know, like when sometimes she was kind of Oh, I don't know, and she was a little bit like that. He, he would just twist the thing and make her laugh. And it would go back to work, you know, easily. And on her side, I think she gave to Gier much more structure in his work. And she really helped him to discover how to do interviews and how to be much more um, not only photo, and I see that in the installation he has been doing since the film, he added video and he added interviews. Did you go and see his exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum? Uh, no, I didn't. You should, you should, because um, I think, you know, it was a, how you say, good sharing between two artists that are not from the same generation, but that makes us understand that we can share with somebody of another generation, you know. So that part I can answer, okay? The other part, I cannot, I'm not her. Perhaps in the, in the new century, she was more attracted towards experimental uh, art or experimental, uh, Different different modes besides 
uh, traditional filmmaking, maybe. Well, she was always interested, but you know, when she met Andy Warhol in the, in the 60s yeah. uh, at the factory, she was already interested in the film she had, he had done, you know, the film that is long, 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 I don't remember the title now. Chelsea Girls? You know, where he put the yes. camera and, yeah. Oh. And then, of course, she knew the film of Joanna's Makers and, you know, I mean, but she even worked with Shirley Clark, you know, but she was not, I think, she was interested by experimental movies or cinema, but it was not her thing, you know? It's not, I don't think it's not, it's what she wanted to do. What she tried to do on the last part of her life when she did installation is the questioning once again of still image, moving image, you know, how you share that, how you can put it in a different medium, that means on the wall, on the, on, on the floor, uh, what is the perception of a little image, of a big image, and everything. But she was not a searcher, you know, like some film directors are really doing experimental movies and really are on the, you know, only doing that. I don't think it was her world. Um, I was just wondering if you were ever in front of her camera. I didn't notice from the footage in this, but as the daughter of a oh, I, photographer, I, filmmaker. What? As the daughter of a photographer, filmmaker. Uh, okay, so I, I can just answer two things. One is going to make you laugh. I was her doll when I was a little girl, you know? But then it stopped because when I was able to say, I don't want to be in front of the camera, it was finished. Now, I was really uh, once in, in the film she did in 1976 called L'une chante l'autre part. And um, it's a kind of a film she did for my 18th birthday and it's a feminist film where um, the story, I, I, this is a film that I will present in January because it's a very, I think really beautiful film and very modern in a way. It's a musical, it's feminist, and it's really the story of two young girls that will become friends and their life will be very different and it's the story of their life and their friendship. And it's, um, she asked me to be the, the last sequence of the film and I really didn't want it but she really, she did not convince me. It's that when she wanted something, you couldn't say no. So, you know, uh, I did do it. But uh, I really realized that I did not want to be an actress. You had to be much too narcissistic to be in front of a camera. I mean, it's just, it's just so difficult. I mean, you know, it was the first and the last time. How old were you when you... 18. 18, yeah. It's, it's perfect. It's, 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 no, it's, it's a beautiful. I mean, it's no, it's perfect because I really but. did it the first time and the last time. But now you can still talk about it. <laughs> yes, I can still talk about it, but I feel miserable <laughs> thinking about it. But not when you talk. About, the movie is great. The movie is amazing. I think the movie is really interesting to see it now because you know to think it has been done in '76, and it's such joyful way to speak about feminism. And it's such a wise way to speak about feminism. And friendship. And friendship. Yeah. And f another subject which is 
your life can start really miserable and can finish nicely yeah. in happiness. That's true. Yeah. So, you know. Thank you so much, Rosalie, for being here. Thank you so Thank much you. for being here. And you will be back. You say yes. this. <laughs> You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases, the publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education, curriculum, and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org.